COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. Under the Black Light began in March 2020 as an exercise in intersectional storytelling. In those earliest days of the pandemic, we recognized that we were bearing witness to an unwriting of our story, even as we were experiencing it. We knew that without a concerted effort to uncover what we called the intersectional vulnerabilities that COVID laid bare, that conventional news and policy talk would overlook the devastating impact of this crisis on Black folks and on other marginalized groups as well. Eventually, there was, for a brief moment, some media coverage of the disparate rates of infection and death that ravaged our communities. But of course, the reporting of racial disparities, apart from any acknowledgement of the structures and, and the histories that produce these disparities, invites framing the disease and death that we were experiencing as the consequence of our own decision-making. It was, we were told, our habits and cultures and proclivities that put us in harm's way, not the decisions, the structures, the histories, and the laws that provided the highway for COVID's invasion of our bodies and our communities. To guide us in resisting the unwriting of current pain and future possibility, we look in this episode to two of the most visionary writers of our time for guidance. Among our guests' many talents is their creative genius in inserting Black women into narrative spaces where they have otherwise been written out. Who better to think about how we make ourselves fully legible in a possible future than writers who mastered the craft of piecing together fully realized narratives from the scraps of our negligible existence in the canon? First, we'll hear from Saidia Hartman, a MacArthur Genius Fellow and a scholar of African-American literature and cultural history. She is the author of the critically acclaimed books, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval, and Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Route. Through her work, she explores the limitations of our current historical archive and attempts to excavate the intricacies of Black life in America. She describes her work as writing about those who are unknown, dispossessed, and disposable. Then we'll hear from N.K. Jemison, American speculative fiction and fantasy writer and the author of The City We Became, How Long Till Black Future Month, The Inheritance Trilogy, and The Broken Earth Trilogy. She's been nominated for seven Nebula Awards and seven Hugo Awards, for which she's won four. She's the only person ever to win a Hugo Award. Again, that's the highest prize in science fiction and fantasy for every book in a series. She's also the only person ever to win three Best Novel Hugos in a row. Both of these visionary artists have challenged the constraints of their respective genres, using speculative fiction to write into the void, recovering and reimagining Black stories that have been mangled or omitted entirely. They are strategists in navigating memory and possibility, whose magnificent imaginative tools equip them to stage a sit-in in the American imaginary. It was a dream to have had the chance to speak with both of them together. 
I began by asking Saidiya Hartman, as a scholar of African-American literature and cultural history, what moments in the past she was looking to for insights into the current moment. Well, thank you. It's great to be here and thank you for that lovely introduction. As we were experiencing the pandemic unfold, I immediately began to think about historical precedents. And I looked through these issues of the crisis and I saw some scant mention of it. Not surprisingly, with the Spanish influenza, Black people you know, died at a much higher rate than their white neighbors did. What's interesting though, is that for seven years before the outbreak of the pandemic, Black people were dying at that record level of death rate. So I, I think that in the early period, maybe why there was less attention to the impact of the Spanish influenza has exactly to do with the conundrum that we're facing now. And it's about the overwhelming presence of white violence and racist terror. We're talking about you know, the Red Summer. We're talking about an epidemic of lynching. We're talking about the 1920s where the Klan becomes a nationalized political formation. So we're dealing with all kinds of precarity at the hands of fellow citizens, at the hands of the state, as well you know, as a consequence of pathogens. But as in that case, as in our own, um, the social distribution of death is going to impact the way that pandemic plays out. Yeah. I've been worrying and sometimes have been calling this potentially the red summer of 2020. There's plenty reason to, to be worried about the confluence of both the viral pandemic, but also racial violence. We're seeing lynchings happening across the country. We're seeing, of course, uh, police violence. Um, we're seeing political appeals coming from the highest level, basically fueling, fanning uh, the flames that have contributed historically to um, Black precarity, to the most obscene forms of violence. And so I'm, I'm wondering, and, and I want to begin to talk about the approach that you take to uncovering parts of history that have, have been unwritten, that have not been passed on. What is the significance of being able to identify patterns so that when we don't have the, the narratives, when we haven't written ourselves into them, the inability to see the, the patterns is part of the precarity? Right. I mean, I, I think that there's a structural logic that has been in play for a long time. We can talk about that structural logic as anti-Blackness, or if we think of, you know, just the very definition of racism, right? It's about the uneven distribution of death across a social field. It's about a monopoly of life chances. It's about vulnerability to premature death. And unfortunately, those things have defined our situation that's unfortunately it's been the normative condition and that hasn't changed right and i think that that's why this moment feels so pivotal because people are in the streets understanding that structural logic understanding this as a you know this long-standing condition and basically people want to abolish the structure that maintains death as our norm yeah. It's fair to say that um, throughout your career, you've been a time traveler of sorts. You, you look back to, to piece together stories that have been snuffed out. You breathe new life into narratives by what you call critical fabulation. So tell us about how you develop this approach and what it actually is? What, what are you doing when you're critically fabulating? Right. I mean, it, it, it's not unrelated to the Say Her Name project. Um, I found myself attracted to and drawn to these figures in the archive overwhelmingly who were anonymous. I mean, certainly in the context of writing about slavery, we know we have hundreds of enslaved people who are you know, not identified by name. So partly it was 
this effort to try to narrate a story that was impossible to tell. And, you know, one case was about a young girl who was, you know, murdered aboard a slave ship. And there were only, you know, three words about her, the said Negro girl, and the other words were a sulky bitch. And that was the trace of her existence in the archive. And I wanted to break open the epistemic frame so that we might understand the character of that experience and how that experience is so formative of our present, um, both the way we're still living in the world that was created by the transatlantic slave trade, by racial capitalism, by that brutal modernity, and that this young violated black girl was at the center of this story of this, you know, campaign around this particular case, but that she was without a name. So I think the, this larger Black feminist project is about trying to tell these stories that are deemed marginal or not significant. And critical fabulation was a way for me to work with and against the limits of the archive to try to transpose and rearrange its elements so it might yield other kinds of stories, all the while being aware of the limits of the archive and the way its violence was, um, you know, irreparable. So what could we do given the forms of violence and racism and domination that produced that archival record, which is the material we use to narrate the past? And I thought, oh, we can't be limited to the slave log and the ledger in narrating the histories of our past. But I'm, I'm writing about the past, I'm always writing in the mode of a history of the present. For me, the past is not some discrete moment that's over, but when we think about the social and historical for forces which have produced our now, which have produced the kind of the current crisis of Black life that we're living. So I try to tell those stories in a way that opens the time of them so that we feel implicated by them. We feel this connection with them. Yes. And there, there are ways in, in which so much of what you do, as you said, maps onto and, and in some ways resonant with uh, Say Her Name. We are also trying to fill in the story, the narrative, to tell a fuller uh, paint a fuller picture of how we conceptualize anti-Black violence, to do so from um, some of the, the snippets of the story that have made their way into public consciousness, but also filling it in with what we can know from, from the mothers. I was really struck by um, how you describe the pieces that you're working with. The archive, you said in this case, is a death sentence, a tomb, a display of the violated body, an inventory of property, a medical treatise on gonorrhea, a few lines about a whore's life, an asterisk in the grand narrative of history. So these are the places um, where snippets of Black life, particularly Black uh, women's life, show up. And your work is, is, I mean, it's an understatement to say it's a revelation, but um, the way in which it allows us to use our creative ability to fill in the links, not to allow our irrelevance to be the end of our own ability to sit with and witness um, the lives of our foremothers. Nora, you can create worlds that readers can disappear into for weeks at a time. And I discovered that during uh, our social justice writers retreat, when one of your biggest fans, I'm going to give her a shout out, Justine Young, <laughs> was engrossed for days reading something. She was in the pool, she was reading it over breakfast, she was reading it at a beach, and I was like, what are you reading? And so she gave me the trilogy for my birthday, and, and then I begged off from having to do anything social because I told people I was working on my own book. I wasn't. <laughs> um, I, was, I was in these worlds, and it was for me, you know, an affirming interruption of what so much travels as speculative fiction. And, and in it, I, I realized how much I was missing, sort of 
wandering around the conventional parameters of sci-fi and fantasy. For fans of the genre, black female fans especially, we've accepted the parameters of this genre that have in ways large and small put up, you know, no trespassing signs across our access to imaginary futures or alternative realities or fantasies. But you uh, do the, the work of not only like, tearing down the no trespass signs, you, you scaled the wall and you just marched right in. So for those who need a prequel, sort of, how did you stage the sit-in, <laughs> which is your, what you're doing? <laughs> Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you in the spirit in which we usually start with mm -hmm. a snapshot, um, paint a picture for us. What is the citadel that you saw? <laughs> that's, uh, that's very kind of you to frame it that way. Um, I was not the first person to storm it. Uh, there have been many other Black writers before me. And because I saw what they went through, you know, I did feel like my decision to try and do anything in this field kind of did feel like like storming a citadel. And that's simply because the citadel existed. The citadel um, is that science fiction and fantasy and horror and interstitial stuff and all of the things that make up the speculative fiction genre have been multicultural and multigendered and multiracial and so on, basically since their inception. This is not really in dispute. We, we've got the stories, we've seen the proof, but the perception of science fiction though, as painted in the popular consciousness is a whole other thing. Um, and that gets repeatedly reinforced by people in the genre and outside of it. I have won a bunch of Hugos at this point, um, most recently this past weekend. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you, thank you. Um, and Hugos are notable because librarians and teachers and people who don't really know anything about the field um, do tend to refer whatever's on the Hugos and the Nebula lists and a couple of other lists. Um, that's the framing that they use, that they hold up as like, this is what is science fiction for people that don't know what science fiction is. And for many, many years, the Hugos were all white, uh, predominantly male, if not all male. And, you know, this is a thing that has started to change in the last decade or two. Um, there was a period in the 90s where it started to be a little bit more women, and then there was a backlash. And now we're going through a period where it's starting to be more women and more POC, um, more indigenous folks, more trans folks, more marginalized people of all flavors, and there's a backlash. So, um, and, and the, the particular, I mean, I guess if there's a moment where I guess I chose to storm the castle, um, it's when I accepted my Hugo Award for the, the third of the trilogy. And I gave a speech, which you can find on YouTube, where I pointed out that, you know, this is what I had to go through. You know, I was pointing out what marginalized writers and particularly black women writers and particularly me <laughs> had to go through to kind of get to that point. Um, and to me, that was a, it was a speech that was triumphant. It was a speech that was joyous. Um, it was a speech that, acknowledged that road um, that I'd had to walk and those walls that I'd had to climb. Um, and it was a message for other writers like me, um, whatever flavor of like me they wanted to take from, that they too had room and space within this place. Other people had gone before me and to go with that citadel metaphor had battened down that door. Um, there was another gate inside. I'm hopefully helping to batten that one down. And then at some point in the distant, God knows when future, uh, black women writers, other marginalized writers can come in without having to deal with all this shit. Pardon my language. Um, so, but that's where I am. But, uh, so I've, I've watched that speech many times. What I love so much about it is the fact that, you know, there, there, there are those who say, you know, the way that you fight back against those who have uh, lesser expectations is quietly succeed. Then, you know, uh, people will, will recognize the wrongfulness of their way. So, so first of all, that surely hasn't been true for you, and I'd say for, for many of us, right? But what I love the most about it is, you know, when, when you took the award, which is kind of phallic, and you said, <laughs> um, I get to smile at those people and lift a massive 
shining rocket shaped middle finger in their direction. I was like, this is not the integration of, you know, um, the, the people who go quietly into these spaces. It was like, you stayed to sit in and, you know, gave the finger. And I just was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. Say just a, a few words um, and, and not to give too much space to it, but a little bit about the campaign against your, I mean, you, you, your take in this field. Well, I mean, the, the campaign wasn't specifically against me. The campaign was a reaction to that widening that I talked about of who was getting nominated, who was actually getting awards. Um, we were seeing a lot more women. We were seeing a lot more trans individuals. We were seeing a lot more just people from different marginalized and intersectional backgrounds. And that's great. That to me was a sign that we were starting to hear from more voices from that broader real science fiction and fantasy that's always existed, um, but which various gatekeepers uh, throughout the, the history of the genre had deliberately and overtly stopped, um, had done what they can to kind of, you know, keep those gates closed. And, you know, there's, there was an award that was until recently named after uh, one of the most famous editors in science fiction, uh, John Campbell. And Campbell, among other things, is, is known to have told writers of, of color, black writers, Chip Delaney uh, or Samuel Delaney, one of the first black science fiction writers, was not able to publish a Nebula award-winning piece um, in this man's book because he had decided the audience was not ready to read a black man in uh, a heroic role. Um, and so, like I was saying, the, the science fiction has always been sort of artificially framed as a cishet white guy thing. Um, and it's never been that. So in roughly mid-20-teens or so, uh, there was a, a group of right-wing folks who decided that um, they were going to protest the, the changes of the genre. Now, they, they did all sorts of dog-whistly things to frame it as, oh, it's, a, it's conservative writers are being badly uh, harmed by this. Gun lovers are being harmed by this. Every dog-whistle you could think of. Um, and so they did things like they uh, partnered with various hate coalitions, online har harassment campaigns and stuff, um, to try and tailor and curate the awards in the way that they wanted. Um, and they did a campaign where they effectively kind of rigged the voting. Um, there was a loophole in the, in the rules. People uh, were expecting everyone to vote for uh, the stuff that they just genuinely legitimately liked, but then they decided to say, okay, Vote for these writers, whether you've read them or not. Vote for these stories, whether you like them or not. Just vote for them and we can get them on the ballot. And then that way we can keep those other folks off the ballot. And through a, a convoluted set of stuff, um, basically it came to the point where the voters had the chance to vote on this slate that they had created, that these reactionary folks had put onto the Hugo ballot. They managed to take over the nominations, um, but the audience just did not have it. They rejected pretty much all of the folks from this reactionary group. And I was one of the people that ended up actually getting an award that year. Um, so that was my first Hugo. I didn't have to do anything uh, to make these people angry. I've been getting death threats basically since I started getting published in this field. The publication was enough. That was back when I was quiet. Um, so, you know, they're, they're going to come for you whether you speak up or not. And, you know, you might as well at that point speak up and you might as well do what you can to widen the space around you so that other people can come in and yell too, if that's what's necessary to, to make it clear. I just want to just pause for a moment to think about this. You're getting death threats for what you imagined, mm. <laughs> for, for the worlds that you create on the page that we can then occupy with our minds. That's so transgressive to some people that you do not deserve to live on this planet. Mm. So I just have to sit with that uh, for a moment because once we acknowledge that even our imaginaries will find those who want to snuff us out. It cannot be the case that we think, well, let's just go sit down and work it all out, mm -hmm. right? This is not for, for a lot of people, you know, about a negotiation. The, the realm of what most people think racism is, it's just about prejudice or they haven't been exposed. No, for some people, 
we cannot exist, not, not just in this planet, but in any realm imaginable. And, and that's liberating in a very particular way. Um, so I, I wanted to start this conversation more uh, in the archiving realm of your, your stories, your own stories about how you started or formative moments. But before I did that, I wanted to ask idea, have you had any moments where you wanted to give the middle finger to those who have critiqued or, or, or expressed grievance about what you're doing or how you're doing what you're doing? Clearly, that's a rhetorical question, Kim. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think I would echo N.K. Jemison's point uh, to address you formally that so much of the work of oppression is really about policing the imagination. And so basically, there's a script that has been imposed, and the most we're supposed to do is aspire to fit into that. So then when we say, oh, what well, we don't want to be included in this, we want to change the entire script, then there's a mechanism of policing that, you know, we can experience in the dominant world, but there's also a mechanism of policing that can occur in the space of the intraracial community. And certainly in wayward lives, I mean, I was trying to illuminate that conflict or that gap between the way black elites and race leaders were imagining progress and the way um, young wayward women and queer folk were imagining what the future might look like, right? And for them, the future wasn't about trying to be a dutiful citizen and get the best that this limited world could offer, but it was actually trying to be utterly uh, recalcitrant and derelict to the formulas of like work, duty, responsibility, heteropatriarchal families, etc. And as Black folks, some of us, a minority, have been actively invested in that project too, policing from whatever context in which it comes. We have to push against that and we have to create the space for these other stories because I, I think that the point that I try to make in my work is that Black radicalism has characterize our history since the first boat, right? Since the first struggle against the first capture on the African continent, that it's not new, nor is it the sole possession of elites and the educated, right? I mean, trying to imagine surviving in a context in which we're not meant to survive, that's a radical act that requires uh, vision and intelligence. And I just tried to kind of affirm those other modes and those other desires for being in the world. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned um, Lose Your Mother, and there are two moments in, in which the way that you both have narrated your work really resonated with me. So, Sadia, so I'll start with your journey to Ghana in, in the slave castles uh, in Ghana. So I had one of those moments, too, um, going to one of the castles and, and, and being in those holding uh, pits and um, looking out at, at the door of no return. And, you know, so there's this moment of just retching sorrow and grief in your imaginary is home, like being ripped away, feeling that. And then, you know, a loss of the loss because, you know, I look around and, and our guides are not connected in the way our fantasies want them to be. Um, and then on top of that, uh, we go to the museum and, and see all of the things that the region had benefited from the global trade. And there's, you know, goods and there's currency and, and there's language and there's all this stuff, you know, that was exchanged. And then you get to the very last panel and, and, and there's where it's mentioned that, oh yeah, humans were exchanged as well. And so they're, they're shackles that are, that are you know, attached to the panel. And so there was this sort of violent moment in which I had this memory of being a kid and during the early black history moments when corporations got involved in it, they created this series of When We Were Kings and I collected all of these placemats of all the kings of Africa that we supposedly were descended from. And it just was like a, a, a violent moment in my memory because it was like, you know, the painful truth is some of us might have been 
descendants of kings, but a lot of us were the ones that the kings and queens, you know, gave away. And it just hits me that it seems like so many of our fantasies of origin have been most, most comfortable expressed as, you know, descendants of elite and patriarchal storylines. You know, we find solace in that. And it, it came back around a couple weeks ago when everybody was shocked, shocked, shocked when it turned out that matrilineal lineages are, are far more robust in, in our population than the patrilineal ones. And it made me think, okay, what are people not getting about the industrialization of our reproduction, namely industrialized rape as part of slavery? Um, what aren't we telling ourselves? What kind of histories are we silencing? What is it that we don't want to know or we don't want to tell? So it brings me back around, which is all to say, you've spoken about the resistance you've encountered in your field, in your own family, when you try to conjure up these narratives. How is this um, gendered? Is the resistance gendered in a way that you think contributes to why people are so shocked about you know, what came out a couple of weeks ago, why they're so unwilling to interrogate in particular the stories of the women that are at the center of your work? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many, you know, great and complex um, issues that you've raised. I mean, I would say one in terms of the African royal narrative. I mean, I think that I was shocked when I went to Ghana because I had also read so many African writers. I had read Aikwe Arma. I had read Yambo Oluguem. I had read Amaata Aidu. I had read, you know, Chinwezu. I had read Ali Mazrui. So these were... Africans who had a clear, clear understanding of slavery and coloniality, right? I mean, I grew up on Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. So when I went into that space at Cape Coast Castle, I was shocked. But of course, when we think about the coloniality of knowledge production, I mean, who erected the narrative in the castle? USIS, the you know, United States Information Service. So there was a certain narrative of encounter that they were framing and producing, but I was still, you know, utterly shocked to see it. Aikwe Arma has a great line. He says in 2000 season, he says, royalty is a disease. So when I went, I wasn't looking for the royal um, lineage. I was actually just, you know, thinking about that history of the commoner, those who are made disposable. But to your second point, I mean, I think that that is why there's so few stories of enslaved women, because sexual violence is so much a part of the violence and dishonor of enslavement. And it's something that, with the exception of feminist thinkers and writers, the historical scholarship has been, you know, loath to acknowledge. I mean, Angela Davis's, you know, famous essay on the role of women in the community of slaves was a response to Eugene Genovese's role, Jordan role, where he imagined that relationships between enslaved women and slave masters was consensual, right? And um, even in the New York Times story that was dealing with these kind of genetic legacies, I mean, they couldn't use the word rape. They couldn't talk about sexualized violence as part of the institution of slavery that coerced reproduction as a way of increasing wealth and commodities. That inability to really address that violence head on. Again, it's also related to the crisis of our present. I remember reading for the first time in um, Amy Cox's Shape Shifters uh, this statistic that was utterly staggering. 60% of Black girls reported being sexually assaulted by the time they reached the age of 18. And I was like, how can that be possible? And why isn't there a national campaign about that, right? So it's a way in which this inability to contend with the violence of kind of heteropatriarchal formations, whether in the context of, you know, the white normative order of the plantation or in our present continues to make Black women and girls extremely vulnerable to violence, 
but seemingly a violence that um, people feel comfortable not talking about, not addressing. It is hard to imagine anyone else being subject to such a great amount of violence and it being so routine and that not precipitating a national discussion about endangered Black girls. Yeah. And, and shout outs here to Black Women's Blueprint that did that research. I wanted to now also, Nora, uh, share something that was prompted when I read about your entry into uh, sci-fi with, with your father, what you watched on TV, and brother from another planet. Um, I, I feel like we were in sort of parallel, you know, development uh, phases. I even remember my dad was a big fan of Star Trek. And uh, one, of, one of the most annoying things I have to tell you is that was before remote control. So I was his remote control. <laughs> That's how I got, you know, into it. He would call me from all the way downstairs. Like, why are you calling me to do it? Like, you know, um, but it was, it was an amazing moment, you know, because we, we, we bonded over watching every episode, you know, together. Um, so that, that was the moment of falling in love with this genre, but it was also the thing around which I later became exposed to its limitations. Your, your essay on how long till Black Future Month, there's a part where you celebrate Janelle Monae's future in uh, the short film Many Moons, and you confess that even given your portfolio, even given all of the ways that you actually reimagine these spaces, you yourself are shocked to see yourself in Monet's future. And you talk about the subconscious resistance to it. Like, what the hell is going on with me that her vision feels so strange. So I was thinking, wow, that is such an interesting reminder that the internalized policing of our own possibilities is something we constantly have to, to struggle with, even when our creative you know, chops are, are directed towards challenging that. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what work it does that we can sometimes internalize the policing that comes from all the messages that tell us we don't have a right to be or imagine or exist in some of the spaces that, you know, white male imaginaries produce. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I was actually thinking about something that Saidia was saying um, about how this, this reframing, this uh, erasure, the archiving of history and how that is used to do a kind of violence of taking us out of where we are, where we've always been. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really kind of what it comes down to is, you know, at the end of the day, if you're just telling the truth about something, you are perceived to be attacking the, the white cis heteropatriarchy that you're dealing with right now. Just, just talking about how it actually is. That speech I referred to uh, for the third Hugo, like I said, for me, it was a triumphant speech. I was just naming things the way that they were. I was acknowledging uh, the, the history that I had come through and, and other authors like me had come through. And for that, I was called, you know, ungrateful and vulgar and a bunch of other things by various establishment figures for whom just simply mentioning the truth was in and of itself a challenge to them. It's not just our success that automatically triggers this kind of weird, violent reaction from, you know, white supremacy. It's also just our existence as anything other than the chattel that they intended for us to be. And, you know, so I didn't really have to do anything, um, you know, but like I said, it's, we've always been here. This is not a new thing to have black people in space um, or thinking about space or thinking about the future. It's just that, you know, the, the erasure happens at so many different levels. And yeah, I grew up watching old school Star Trek where there was Uhura all the time. And, you know, she was a powerful figure in and of herself. Yeah. But she was the secretary. You know, and there was, it was just her. So, um, you know, and these are things that you have to think about when you're, when you're engaging with the future or the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so much I want to say about Ahura, but, but I, I, will, I will save it for, for a, a later conversation. Um, and so the, uh, the audience anticipated exactly where I wanted to go um, today 
is the anniversary of our loss of Toni Morrison. I heard about it just as I was finishing a talk. Actually, the moderator came on while I was um, while I was still standing there and and said that she passed. And literally, my knees buckled. I just um, you know, it, it it was a shock and and I guess a shock at my shock, you know, because somehow I, I realized in the moment that her towering presence made it feel like she was immortal. Of course, in many ways she is. Uh, but I, I always just felt, you know, Tony, Tony is there. <laughs> and so I wanted to, to pause for a moment and, and just think about her footprint. And um, you two will have that footprint. So as you, you know, think about how your voice lives far beyond your body, how, how does that awareness shape what you do and, and, and how you do? And for that matter, who have been your, you know, big sisters or the ones that you know they're there so you can cut it up and, and really live the voice that you want to articulate? Morrison, she just made so much possible, you know, um, the cognitive revolution of reading Beloved. I can remember being a graduate student in New Haven and staying in bed in my pajamas for two days, just reading Beloved. And it was um, a rigorous disenchantment of this American project, you know, from the early foundations of the Republic to just the kind of the order of values that uh, have made this, you know, this nightmare situation in which we live, but more than that, because Morrison isn't right, we might say, oh, in a way, Richard Wright kind of did that, but what Morrison was also able to do was convey the beauty, the wonder, and the brilliance of Black life, right, and to represent our world and speak to us. So I think that so much of the way Morrison decolonized thought was by refusing to be a native informant in her fiction, by refusing a certain kind of bourgeois prescription of social entertainment, but to actually to produce a body of work that radically change the terms in which we envision ourselves and the, and the kind of and the history of um, the US as a national project the realization of her artistry to be so actualized as a black woman creator it just gave so many of us breath made so many of us feel like oh wow maybe maybe i can and so i i understand what you mean kim like it's hard to imagine, you know, life without her, even though she lives on in her work. It's like when you lose an elder of that stature, it's like inhabiting a world without, if suddenly the trees were to disappear, right? Just this kind of like force that is so much a part of how you inhabit the world is no longer there. Although she does live in the work and, you know, she's just given us a tremendous, tremendous gift in that work. And I say and mean my work would not be possible without hers. Yeah. Yeah. Nora, what's your um, meditation on those who came before, those who um, make the way? Well, I mean, for me, the, the, the main sort of... Um, icebreakers <laughs> that I followed behind were uh, more Octavia Butler and people in my genre. Um, I didn't read uh, Toni Morrison, honestly, until I was in high school and felt the resonance and the power at that point of With the Bluest Eye, you know, that search for identity that struggled just to tell the truth about things that exist in the world. Um, there was a campaign in my high school to get the book banned because of the rape scene that happens in it, um, which they framed, of course, as sex. Um, 
just seeing that this story, which is just simply trying to tell the truth about things that happen, got treated as an attack, got treated as offensive, got treated as obscene, probably informed a lot more of my uh, literary development than I really have thought about. Um, I also was fortunate to have another um, kind of main role model sort of throughout my childhood and, and younger years. And that was my Aunt Janet Cheatham Bell. Um, who's a memoirist and lots of other things, uh, was an editor uh, back in the day for Knopf, one of the, the first black female editors in the business. Um, and, you know, she's she's got some books out now, by the way. I will point that out there. Janet Cheatham Bell. Um, anyway, uh, her memoir is called The Time and Place That Gave Me Life. Anyway, but I had people around me who were writers. I had people around me who showed me that the, this was possible. And Toni Morrison was one of those people. We all need those role models. We all need those people who are going to clear the way um, and give us the space in which we can then come in and clear some more way. I want to invite you to say something that, that you said about the Great Cities uh, trilogy. So you talked about how the realities that we're in, the twin pandemics, keep stealing your ideas. And so for those who haven't read your latest, I, I want you to say what you mean there. And for those of us who have read it, what does that do to you? I mean, what does it mean to keep racing ahead? It sort of has a cautionary tale. And then our current sort of catches up and even overtakes the horrific dimensions of what you're trying to do in your imaginary. It, mm -hmm. it must be, to say the least, weird. Um, but but talk about that just a little. Uh, well, I have to talk carefully because this is an unfinished trilogy and I don't want to put in spoilers. But <laughs> so The City We Became is my first novel that is set in the real world uh, in New York in the modern day. Um, and although it was written over a year ago, um, in the story, there's a kind of infectious magical plague that starts to spread through the city and people have to figure out how to deal with that. Um, and of course, so now that it's been published, it literally got published in March as we were going into lockdown. Um, and uh, so lots of people have found resonance with it, which is not exactly great, um, but you know, at least I'm telling enough of the truth that it has meaning even even at this point. The piece of it that I have been uh, scooped on, for lack of a better term, is I had, I had a subplot surrounding police brutality and police engagement, um, infiltration with and cooperation, collaboration with white supremacist groups. Um, and then Portland went off. And then, you know, we just, we, this was not anything new. I was taking inspiration, obviously, from real-world events. Um, the problem is that, um, you know, there was a particular plot line that I had intended to follow, which just got played out a couple of weeks ago. And so, so much for that. I don't particularly want uh, to be living in one of my novels, uh, or any fantasy novel, really, but that's, that's where we are. Yeah, so. yeah. So, it's, I mean, there, there's good news and bad news. The, the good news is that you're right. And the bad news is you're right. <laughs> um, and and Sadia, I, I wanted to just, you, you have recovered uh, a piece of, of sci-fi writing from uh, the great Du Bois that is an amazing meditation on, on this moment as well. Could, could you say something uh, about what you're seeing that that piece is resonating with what's happening now? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, the, the piece is called um, The End of White Supremacy, an American Romance. And um, I think that, you know, Du Bois was so prescient. And one of the things that he is thinking about, like, again, in our moment 100 years earlier is how is white supremacy ever going to end? How are we going to bring an end to like racism and coloniality? And really just thinking about the whole project of the West, its values, its reason, its beauty, its God, as totally entangled with this white supremacist project. So how are we gonna abolish that? And so he crafts this speculative fiction about the end of the world, um, because in you know, the aftermath of the Red Summer, 
how else would one imagine all of that coming to an end? And so there's this moment when there's a possibility of um, a new set of relations potentially emerging that's figured as an interracial love story. And for me, one of the things that's so interesting about that story and about Dark Water as a whole is um, Du Bois just kind of really wrestling with both pessimism and optimism. And he says, you know, those who say the world is good and everything is beautiful lie, but those who are, you know, pessimistic are a coward and resigned to things as they are. So for me, the kind of the, the example of that book is like how in this most dystopian of moments can we imagine a radically different set of arrangements and so i was returning to that piece in the kind of covid pandemic and then hundreds of thousands and then millions of people filled the street so there was like such a resounding articulation to a commitment to create another set of arrangements to say, oh, we're collectively invested in the project of ending carcerality, anti-Blackness, capitalism, heteropatriarchy. And so there was this amazing kind of exuberance and optimism and ideality that's also meeting this moment of incredible death and white supremacy and the most brutal predatory capitalist you know order that we're also living under so du bois was just this really interesting way of again thinking about our now yeah so what what you what you just said made me wonder whether speculative ideation is embedded in everything we do as black people to create a world in which blackness itself is not a marker of precarity you know from from birth to death i think that you're right i mean i think that to imagine black life and to imagine black life thriving under these conditions is a speculative project and i mean i've actually been trying to trace the you know terms in early black writers i mean the earliest example of it is alada ekiano writing in his interesting narrative where he's speculating about the end of the atlantic slave trade and about the end of slavery so he's imagining a future that has yet to be and imagining the pleasure he's going to take in the end of slavery and how we're going to commemorate its end and i thought it was such a kind of an interesting time travel within a few sentences where he says, you know, the speculation is pleasing to me, but what he's actually imagining is all the ways that we're going to kind of commemorate and celebrate the end of the Atlantic slave trade and slavery. So, I mean, we have speculative thought for at least, you know, um, at least two and a half centuries. I want to circle back and, and, and dig now a little a little deeper into into craft and and um, how you both you know kind of do what you do. Um, I mean, both of you are tremendously productive. You have these huge projects; they span years, and and you also live lives. You you're like real people, right? So, I I, I know people want to know what do you do? Are you a morning writer? Are you a night writer? You take a lot of notes, and do you sit and you write from your notes, or do you just have all this stuff and you and you? How do you do it? Uh well, I am still adjusting to no longer having a day job, which I did for for 20 something years. Um, and uh, I'm now also adjusting to quarantine life. So, I mean, for the most part, I write like business hours. I write 10-ish to 3-ish or 4-ish. Um, if I'm under deadline mode, I just write until I get the, the minimum word count done. And what is your word count? Do you have a daily like? Yeah, normally it's 1500 words. Um, but lately, because it has been a struggle to write, and because I've had to do things like revamp my whole outline and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I have now been like getting up to like a 1000 words a day and being okay with that. <laughs> but I really need to ramp up because I got a deadline. So we'll see how that goes. Wow. 
Um, And do you write from uh, what's already in your head or is writing a process of discovering what the story is? It's both. Um, I come up with a story outline initially and then I start writing. And as I write, the characters decide that they want to do other things or the plot goes somewhere else or whatever. And I just kind of wing it from there. Um, And I kind of try and tie it back to the outline that I originally had, because usually I had good ideas in there. I just forgot them. (laughs) But but then I go from there. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so idea, you travel around the world to to do your work. You have, um, in one of your essays, you, you talk about all of the notes that you have and how does that all come together? I mean, I think that there's obviously the research um, part of it and I can actually fall into like a research hole. So um, every project I've you know, started since Lose Your Mother, I've said like, I'm not gonna do a ton of research and then I wind up doing a ton of research. <laughs> and so I think it's about that encounter with lives in the archive and, uh, it's just so fascinating and you know compelling, but but there has to be the the connection, the resonance. There's something that will draw me to one story and not another. So if I'm working with a group of files, I just may read through them all. But then there are those stories that almost on the first reading, I'll know like oh you know there's a character Maddie Nelson, who I write about. The first time I read. Maddie's file, I knew that I would write about her because something touched me deeply, right? And then there was a way, so I had the outlines of like, you know, the facts about her. I had some of her own words, but then I had to use those traces, those words to kind of build out character. And part of it is just like where a certain narrative line may take me. But in the last book, there was also a lot of engagement with like visual materials and particularly photographs from the age. And um, there was such a racist description of Maddie in her own file. I mean, by the kind of, you know, the social workers and the prison officials who described her in the most offensive terms. And I remember coming across this like beautiful photograph of a young black woman taken by F. Holland Day and seeing that image just helped like a door open in my narration about Maddie. So sometimes there are things that have actually no literal relationship to what you're working on that might like open a door. I mean, I try to write um, as much as I can. Unlike, you know, Nora, I feel like I'm yet to live the life of the writer. I'm hungry (laughs) for more time to write Um, and you know just um, so yeah and so are you are you morning writer right when the spirit moves you I work in the early morning because I like the utter quietness of the world and I feel like (laughs) I can hear the voices that I'm engaged Mm. with when the world is very quiet so that's my preferred time for it and I'm a late night writer when I can be. <laughs> like, oh, dark 30. <laughs> Once you get the day aside, you can really focus more. I mean, I, I try not to let myself drift into late night writing because I got stuff to do during the day. But, um, but if, I, if I did let myself go, I would be doing most of my writing at like one in the morning. I have to say, one of the things that I discovered is it's better for me to to write when I'm six hours ahead of the United States because I'm writing before everybody's up. I don't get involved in what's going on in the office. And so I'm on two time zones here. So I never really can get up early enough not to actually be involved in what's going on in New York. But if I'm like in Sweden, <laughs> when the sun stays up all night, I can get a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> So it seems. So I just, you know, I marvel at, at so much that, that you both have said and what, you, what you're doing. And I thought I wanted to more or less end where um, we had a great conversation uh, in the last uh, Black Light with representatives Ayanna Presley, uh, Representative Lee, 
and uh, Attorney General Kim Fox. And, you know, we were, we were talking about this idea about trust black women. And uh, I was asking them about it as, as, as political leaders. And, and of course, it extends to trust black women's vision, uh, trust their storytelling. And we, we, were, we were talking about a whole project of saying how the world might be different if we trusted black women when we had the opportunity to. So, for example, uh, Barbara Lee is the only person that voted against the Iraq war. So if her leadership had been trusted, what would the world look like now? First of all, there'd be several uh, hundred thousand people alive that aren't. Trillions of dollars uh, that were spent uh, would not have been spent. I also thought about what would have happened if we believed Anita Hill. Well, if we mm. believed Anita Hill, that fifth vote, uh, Clarence Thomas, that gave us Bush versus Gore, mm -hmm. uh, wouldn't have happened. Uh, that fifth vote that uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act didn't happen. Mm. To the extent that the gutting of the Voting Rights Act has a lot to do with who's, you know, uh, in the White House now, that may not have happened. So we, we, we talked about, wow, that's a whole project, right? Thinking about what might be different had Black women been more centrally situated in our consciousness, in our storytelling, in our leadership. So I was thinking, you know, since we're talking about curating, you know, for the future, what different uh, possibilities for the future might tell us about what's at stake right now um, in this moment in 2020. So various things could happen in the next three months <laughs> about 2020. Um, so if, if we're just thinking like why we want to tell people we need to all participate in curating this moment. We need to all participate in, participate in telling the story of how we got to this moment. Um, is, it, is it clear, does something come to mind as to how this might make a difference in the future that uh, future generations would inherit? Yeah, that's a, that's a complicated and a rich question. I mean, I think, you know, and you gave, you know, the great example of, you know, Barbara Lee voting against, you know, the war in Iraq. I mean, I think part of the reason why it's hard to trust Black women is that, our values are antagonistic to the order in which we live. So it's not about you know, advancing war, US imperial interests, being invested in capitalism. I mean, why did 55% of white women vote for a sexual harasser and rapist? I mean, it's that thing about what are the investments of the order and often the clarity of Black women's voices um, are at odds with the very set of values which ground the project. So, I mean, supposing we did listen to Black women, what what would you know? What would things look like? I mean, obviously there would be like a radical transformation of the hierarchy of the labor market, just the way. Uh, care work would be valued, what schools would look like. There would be such a kind of a radical uh, rearrangement of the social order. And I think that um, unfortunately, um, there are many people whose sense of the good is actually invested in the order being exactly as it is right now. And um, so it's about that antagonism of vision and of values. Thank you. Nora. Um, well, I mean, I, I had been talking with a friend about this, that there's, there's a kind of singularity that we've reached at this point, you know, with our ability to kind of predict the future at this point. Um, I was thinking about how Octavia Butler's parable books really did an amazing job of predicting the very moment that we're living in, um, right down to the the demagogue, fascist, racist, et cetera-ist, um, backed by religion, uh, by, by various Christian religious groups, um, whose slogan is Make America Great Again. <laughs> um, you know, she, she saw that coming uh, 15 years, 20-something years, 15 years before it ever happened. Um, and so, you know, but 
at the time that she wrote it, it seemed far-fetched. It felt like, you know, I, I, I heard people in the genre say, oh, well, this, this paranoid vision of the future. But, you know, no one trusted Octavia Butler. Lots of people in the, the genre did, but these are some of the gatekeepers in the genre who did not. Um, and, you know, I was kind of comparing her ability to see this coming 15 years down the road with my inability to see what's coming six months down the road. Um, and the fact that things have changed at such a pace and are accelerating at such a pace that we've kind of reached a, a, a sort of cultural singularity that we can't really see past right now. We don't know what's going to happen in the next few months. We don't know, um, you know, if there's going to be a vote. We don't know if the vote will be legitimately counted. We don't know, you know, the, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act was about America's inability to trust Black women. Um, you know, Black people of all genders, but, you know, at the core of it, that tendency of ours to push against the established status quo. Um, the fact that, you know, as you were saying, we are inherently opposed to what makes um, America what they think is great. And there's this ongoing terror in America of uh, letting too many of us get a, a say in how things go. And so that's really what that was about. And that's what all of these attempts and attacks on voting rights are all about, um, is at the end of the day, in order to preserve the status quo, they have to shut us down. And, you know, I don't know what we're going to see six months down the road. And it's largely because um, this trajectory has, has been bottlenecked right now. And the takeaway from that, though, is... When you've got this kind of singularity moment, when you've got this moment that can be defined by whoever is able to get their message and their thought out there, um, it is even more imperative for us to speak loudly. Um, it is even more imperative for us to yell and be seen and heard um, because that's what we got to do, unfortunately, in a, in a world that does not trust us. We can make the future. We can carve ourselves and a future for ourselves from the singularity but it's time to, to do so very loudly if we are going to. Yeah, yeah. So we've heard from two writers who are brilliant trailblazers in the pursuit of a more just society. And it's been such an inspiring and necessary conversation. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by the team at the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, following us on social media, or signing up for our Patreon page. Intersectionality Matters is supported by you, our listeners. If you value conversations like these, consider donating at aapf.org. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Intersectionality Matters.